This audio file comes from the Libri Ideas Library at www.libri-ideas-library.org. The library contains over 1,000 lectures and discussions which explore questions about the reality and relevance of Christianity. We ask you to respect the copyright for this audio file which belongs to Libri Fellowship. The file is for personal use to share with friends, family and colleagues, but please do not publish the material in any format or post it on a website without seeking permission from Libri Fellowship. Please note that views expressed in the lecture and discussion time do not necessarily represent the views of Libri Fellowship. To the Friday night lecture at Southboro Libri. Winter, welcome back. It is so good to have you back. And welcome back, everybody who's watching this. Tonight's lecture is called Healing for Our Time, Recovering Hospitality and Friendship as Demonstrations of the Kingdom. Next week's lecture is from the lovely Anna Friedrich over here, who happens to be my wife. And her lecture is, she has done a beautiful thing. The Anointing of Jesus in All Four Gospels. So tune in next week for that. Back to my lecture. I, my lecture title is a little wordy. <laughs> and, uh, I chose a long time ago and I kind of regretted it ever since. Um, and so if I was to reword it, whoops, I would say this. When strangers become guests and guests become friends. Uh, that's pretty much what we're talking about tonight. But my old lecture title, it still gives us kind of the sense of where we're going to go with the outline. So this is how we're going to go about tonight. First, we're going to start with just touching on the divisions of the present, our present day, that need healing. And then from there, we're going to consider how these two interrelated Christian practices, hospitality and friendship that Christians have given themselves to throughout 2,000 years, how these have brought healing to these divisions in history. And from there, we're going to talk about how then we also need to recognize and lament that these two practices have been eclipsed in our day. They're not as prominent, unfortunately, now as they have been. And that's to our detriment and to the detriment of the gospel and then I'm going to try and show how together they do demonstrate this good news of the kingdom where divisions are healed and all kinds of good things happen. So now most of what I'm going to be saying tonight isn't, isn't new. Uh, you've probably heard some of these things from other authors and I'm going to be mentioning those along the way. But there's something I've not heard a lot about in, in reading about this, is the relationship between these two practices. How they are two very distinct things, but they're also very related, interconnected. And I've seen that played out here at Labrie. And so I'm going to be mentioning that along the way. That's going to be something of my contribution to, to what others have said along these lines, on, on these topics. So first section... The divisions of our day that need healing. And, yeah, let's just talk a bit about social distancing. All right. <laughs> we were sick of this. Uh, I read a few 
an article a few weeks back about this word phrase, social distancing, and it reported that in 2020, it was the 25th top English word slash phrase used on the planet. And of course, um, we're not super surprised with that because of COVID. And we talk about all the time, we've been doing a long time, and I don't know you, but I need some social distancing from the fridge. Because <laughs> all this time at home, you know, you just have extra snack time. And I just need some social distancing from the fridge, from the snack cupboard. Um, but more than that, I need some, uh, yeah, we need some rest from this social distancing, of course, where it relates to people. And I found out, yeah, social distance has meant something else. In, in sociology, it describes that relational distance between people, which of course we're also experiencing with physical social distancing, but it relate, it talks about when there's differences between people groups, differences in our social economic status, our race, ethnicity, sex, gender, religious affiliations. When we have these differences, they typically create distances between us. And those distances can become divisions, and then those divisions can become ugly and hateful and oppressive. And we've seen too much of that in our day. And and when that happens, it's good to look back at history and see when have those divisions, uh, those distances and those divisions been overcome and healed? What was going on there? And how can we learn from that and maybe try to be inspired by it and imitate it in our own day? So that brings us to section number two. And so there have been times in history, thankfully, and even in our present day, that where this has happened. But the most notable example of this in human history that I know of is the early church. When strangers became guests and guests became friends in very radical ways. So yeah, in the first few centuries of the early church, you have people of different sexes, different races, ethnicities, different social statuses, different religious backgrounds, people who were in conflict with each other, reaching out to one another, welcoming one another, becoming friends with one another in radical ways. This was abnormal. (laughs) This was not what was going on. This was unusual, very noteworthy in the history of the world. We we kind of think of, hey, we should be a world where everybody gets along and we all relate to each other as one big family. That's not how the world used to think. (laughs) That's an idea that had a birth here in the first centuries of the early church. And it entailed a whole new way of thinking about who is God, who are we, what does it mean to be human, and how, therefore, should we relate to one another. There was a whole new way of thinking about those things that was introduced to people and resulted in this new way of relating to each other that crossed boundaries, that crossed divisions um, like never before. 
So think about this. How Jesus and his first followers were all Jewish. Jews of the Jewish faith. They weren't proclaiming a new faith. Not by their understanding. It was the fulfillment of the Jewish faith, according to them. But now the vast majority of Christians by far are Gentiles. Millions, now billions of Gentiles worshiping the Jewish God. How did that happen? That, that is unusual <laughs> in the history of religions. Um, how, did, yeah, how did Christianity go from a handful of Jewish believers to within a few centuries, millions of Gentile believers? Well, there's a lot of uh, parts to that story. A lot of ways you can answer that, of course. But, and there's a lot of messy parts in that. This is not just a clean story. (laughs) But part of that answer is that the first Jews had to reach out to these Gentiles and welcome them in to this faith, to uh, become committed to them in various ways, in ways they'd never had to before. And we're not very familiar maybe with how at odds the Jews were with the Gentiles and vice versa. They didn't have a great relationship at this point. They were in major conflicts with each other many times through the centuries. So this was a huge divide to cross, to reach out from and bring these Gentiles in. This was radical hospitality at work, friendship at work. And so now, yeah, today Christianity is the largest and most diverse uh, uh, religion in the world. So just going back, though, think about this. Paul, he's a Jew of Jews, Hebrew of Hebrews, Pharisee of Pharisees. And then one of his main goals, he says in life, was to bring the gospel to Gentiles. So this wasn't because Paul, you know, he was just thinking one day about the Gentiles and thought, hey, you know, Our people have been at odds. It's about time we just reached out and started being nice to the Gentiles and bringing them into our faith. No, that didn't happen with Paul. It wasn't all on his own. It was because he met and was led by Jesus, his way and his mission to the Gentiles. And he was convinced even that the death of Jesus somehow overcame this hostility between them. So, of course, he talked mostly about how the cross overcame the separation between us and God. But here he talks about, in Ephesians, the hostility between each other and how the cross overcame, destroyed that dividing wall. So he says, for he himself, that is Jesus, is our peace, who has made the two groups, that is Jews and Gentiles, one And has destroyed the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility, by setting aside in his flesh the law with its commandments and regulations. His purpose was to create in himself one new humanity out of the two, thus making peace, and in one body to reconcile both of them to God through the cross by which he put to death their hostility. I don't usually think of the cross in that way. I usually, and, and understandably, think of it mostly about me and God, 
but here Paul sees it relationally between each other. The cross puts to death, death this hostility between Jews and Gentiles and made possible hospitality between Jews and Gentiles. And yet, oh, if we would just give more expression to that victory in our day with what's going on in our time. Those times when uh, believers have reached across the divide in this victory of the cross, welcomed in people very different from themselves. This has happened many times where people have cared for those who are very different from them and for those who are in great need, great cost to themselves. So this was something that the early church was known for, had a reputation for. Taking in and taking care of strangers, the poor, the most vulnerable in society. Only that was our reputation in the news today. But, yeah, of course, Marty Kies here has done a lot of work on hospitality. And if you want to go deeper into the the practice of hospitality, even the history, practical outworkings, her lectures are excellent. They're still with me in many ways. <laughs> and I'll ref- refer to them at least one more time through this. But um, she points out how, among other things, how back in the day, Greco-Roman families would do this terrible thing. They would expose their, their infants. Um, they would basically throw them away at a certain place. And they knew that this place, people would come and either take them to be a slave or a prostitute or they would just die. That's what they assumed. That's what they knew would happen. But Christians would go to this place and take those babies. Not to be their slaves or their prostitutes, but to be part of their family. To be part of actually even the bigger family of faith that they were part of. That's what Christians were doing. It was the Christians who took care of the sick. When no one else would, when there would be a big plague and people were dying, no one was going out there to help the people except the Christians. They had this motivation to go there and help them at great risk to themselves. Again, these were the kinds of things that Christians were doing, this radical hospitality. And it was Jesus, of course, that gave them this distinction He gave them the hope, of course, of the resurrection. So they didn't fear death like other people. So they could go into a plague. And they wouldn't be afraid of dying because they knew that they were going to be raised from the dead. But more than that, Jesus gave them a different, a new value system. That was different than the one in in this day. So, for example, in Roman culture, women, of course, had less value than men. Slaves had less value than free people if they had any value at all. And so Jesus comes in with a different value system, of course, the value system being everybody has the same value. So that's why Paul would say, there is neither now Jew nor Gentile, slave or free, male or female. Those were value distinctions. Everybody had different values back in that day. And according to Jesus... Everybody has the same value. This was revolutionary. And so, yeah, not just, you don't just value free men, 
but unwanted babies, the sick, maybe your enemies, slaves. Everybody had value, according to Jesus. Everybody was worth suffering for, according to Jesus, and therefore had significance and should be welcomed, taken in, and maybe eventually become friends. So yeah, Christians, they were just, they were because of this teaching of Jesus, this example, because of his presence with them through the Holy Spirit, they were reaching across the divides, out to the margins. And here's an, a powerful example. This is uh, the story of Perpetua and Felicitas, if you know this one. Perpetua was this uh, young Christian woman. She was a noble woman of high standing in the, in the third century and Felicitas was her slave. And they had both become Christians. And they were both in this uh, catechism, uh, learning the faith. They weren't, I think, from what I remember, not baptized yet. They were about to be. And in Roman culture, a noble woman and a slave, they were on the opposite ends of the hierarchy of value. And according to Aristotle, you shouldn't be, couldn't be friends with your slave. That just didn't work. They were of a different hierarchy. Um, they were of a different value. So yeah, slaves, they were, they were just your property as you, as you could do with, with you wish, what you wish. But Christians, uh, as Christians, they had a different set of values. They, they didn't have different values. They were of the same value. Therefore, they could welcome each other, care for each other, become sacrificial friends of one another. This was not happening. <laughs> this kind of thinking, this kind of relating. When slaves had prominent positions in the church, this was a challenge to the Roman structure, the hierarchies of the day. So, uh, Perpetua, are, um, yeah, Perpetua and Felicitas, they get arrested because of being Christians, and mostly because, of course, they wouldn't worship the emperor as those who, who worshipped only Jesus. And eventually they were uh, put into the arena and killed um, for this. And so I think mostly we think of, yeah, emperor worship is what they were being put to death for. But I've been re- listening to a historian, Sarah Williams, who's taught at Regent College, and she says she's re-looking at the martyr stories and that probably one of the other things that was going on was that they couldn't stand this challenge to the hierarchies of the day, especially those in power. Suddenly you're saying other people have equal value? That's a big threat to the system. And so they were a big threat. And so there's this story of when they, they were led into the arena to die, and Felicitas, the slave, was struck down by a wild beast. And uh, Perpetua her, uh, goes in and goes to pick her up because uh, she's fallen down. And she holds her hand and they start to sing <laughs> together because they're friends. They're sacrificial friends. That didn't happen except amongst Christians in that day. You don't do that for your slave. They're not worth it. But according to Jesus, they were. That's powerful. That image really striking to me. Touches me. 
<laughs> this commitment to Jesus played out in a commitment to each other, a different way of relating to each other. Again, I don't know of any other religious group, school, philosophy, political party, ideology that was ever doing something like this. To this extent, to this degree in history. This is remarkable. Something to pay attention to. Now, people have certainly practiced hospitality before and have had friendships before long before Christianity came on the scene. But for the most part, it was for people who were very much like themselves. And most of the time, it was for your own advantage. Um, But Christian hospitality was set apart in that regard, in that it wasn't advantageous for the most part, most of the time, for Christians. Most of the time, they were going for the most vulnerable at great cost to themselves. And they weren't just going after people who were just like themselves, just their own family, typical family and friends who looked a lot like themselves. They were reaching across the divides of their time in a way that nobody else was. This is what they were known for. Now again, it wasn't as if Christians just happened to be better people who just thought of this on their own. It was because they were taking their cue from Jesus. And the way he practiced hospitality, the way he taught it, the way he lived it. And that's, of course, yeah, anytime Christians have paid attention to that, we see this radical hospitality breaking out. And yeah, I think this is what gives the gospel credibility. And in the early centuries, The credibility of the gospel was tied together with how people, how Christians were doing this or not. And that makes good sense. Because, yeah, of course, when it has been lacking, when we've seen the opposite of hospitality in our history, that's where people point to. They say, well, that's why I wouldn't believe what you guys are talking about. But when people see and experience the hospitality of Christ in that radical way, well, that tastes pretty good. Yeah, I can believe that. That makes the gospel more credible. But that's where it's a bit sad. (laughs) Not a bit sad. It's time to lament because these practices are not as prominent in our day as they have been in our past. It's not like everything in our past was perfect or uh, it was a golden age or something. But these practices were much more prominent in our past than in our present. And I think we're uh, seeing that and feeling that. A lot of what, I'm gonna, what I think about in, of, of hospitality, how I talk about it, comes from this book by Christine Pohl. It's a big book at Libri, uh, Making Room, it's called. And Recovering Hospitality as a Christian Tradition. So you can see where I got my title from. Uh, this has been her work. She is uh, a retired professor from Osbury Theological Seminary. She's taught Christian ethics for a long time. Spent years studying, practicing, t- 
teaching about Christian hospitality. He's a friend of Marty's. She's been here at, uh, at Southboro Labrie. She spent time at English Labrie. Recently, Anna and I just uh, hosted a book study with her, with some people, which was great. And just to see how, how hospitable she was. <laughs> so, you know, you read an author and you don't always know if they're walking the walk and they're, they're um, practicing what they preach, but it seems she does. But if you're going to read one book on hospitality, I would recommend this book. And if you want to do a study group on this book, her study book that goes with it is excellent. Has incredible, good questions, things to think about, movies to watch. It's really, really good. I highly recommend it. But according yeah, to her research, uh, her observations in our day, hospitality, even among Christians has been to reduce to something typically quite small. It's either entertaining our friends, who pretty much look very similar to us, and where it's not very costly to us in many ways, or hospitality gets reduced to what the hospitality industry does. And this is a far cry from what hospitality has meant in the fuller biblical historical sense. It's been reduced to something quite small. And I think you can even see this if you, the typical hospitality ministry at a church. Uh, It doesn't always sound like what you read about hospitality being in the New Testament or in throughout church history. So yeah, do we typically think of hospitality as welcoming strangers into our home? Inviting the poor to our dinner table. Giving shelter to the most vulnerable. So think of, um, or look at this teaching from Jesus. This is, Jesus is at a meal of a prominent Pharisee. And he's having a conversation. And then suddenly he turns to the host and he drops this in his lap. And he says, hey you, (laughs) When you give a luncheon or a dinner, don't invite your friends, your brothers or sisters, your relatives, or your rich neighbors. If you do, they may invite you back, and so you will be repaid. But when you give a banquet, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind, and you will be blessed. Although they cannot repay you, you will be repaid at the resurrection of the righteous." That's challenging. I find that a challenging um, teaching from Jesus. He's, of course, challenging the host in this passage. But he's also challenging the hospitality that was at work in his day. And a lot of times that was hospitality was just extended just to uh, your close friends and family who were typically a lot like yourself. Typically your friends were your family. Or you extended hospitality to someone who it would be quite advantageous for you to do it to your rich neighbors, as Jesus points out. So instead, Jesus says, you know what? Why don't you go to those people who have nothing to offer you back? Um, go to the vulnerable. Go, go to those out on the margins who nobody else is inviting. Those who are left out. 
So yeah, Christine Pohl, she points out that this much more radical hospitality of Jesus, again, was much more prominent in the past. In the early church, took place mostly in people's homes. Uh, eventually, it was moving more towards monasteries that acted like these little small hospitals, but more more holistic, more personal than we're used to hospitals being today. But after the Middle Ages, this kind of hospitality started to fade, started to change, started to go backwards, actually. So hospitality, again, became more about entertaining, displaying your wealth, reinforcing your power and your status. And unfortunately, a lot of this happened in the church and even with bishops towards one another. We're supposed to take this vow of poverty, and then instead they're displaying this wealth. They take a vow of poverty, they took a vow of poverty, but somehow it was okay for them to have all this wealth and to display it to to really reinforce their power and their status. Well, I think, yeah, this kind of, you know, this way of establishing ourselves, I think this is still at work in us, even in our minds, even our hesitation to extend hospitality to someone. When we think, you know, maybe my place just isn't clean enough or impressive enough, or maybe the meal I'm going to make just isn't going to be impressive enough. And I think that's the kind of thinking that's counter to what Jesus is talking about. And I remember, actually, this is something Marty mentioned in one of her lectures. I can't remember which one, but hospitality is not about impressing people. It's about serving people. It's about loving people. And that's a huge distinction. That's the difference between worldly hospitality and Christian hospitality. And I love this. This proverb, Proverbs 15, 17. Better a small serving of vegetables with love than a fattened calf with hatred. <laughs> it's great. I mean, it could be, you know, you could have a feast too with love. You know, it doesn't have to be just a small serving of vegetables. And vegetables can be tasty. Um, but, uh, but the idea is, it doesn't have to be big and complicated. The biggest ingredient in hospitality is an atmosphere of love. And people know that right off the bat, if that's the atmosphere or not. You could have a huge feast, but if that's lacking, it's not very enjoyable. It's not hospitable. And hospitality could be a meal, but it could be, you know, hospitality doesn't have to be complicated and big. It can be simply inviting someone into your space and asking them a question. And listening to them. It could be as simple as that. You can do that almost with anyone, almost anywhere. And I trust almost everybody wants you to do that <laughs> to some degree. People are hungry for that. And that's something we can offer. That's, that's what hospitality could be. Um, and that's just not going on very much in the world right now. So hospitality, backing up to the early church, hospitality was mostly in homes, and uh, but then became more and more about um, entertaining. And then what happened was the, the the compassion of hospitality did get started pouring into the the hospitals that ended up growing and becoming what we know today. Uh, 
and the, the They became bigger and more efficient. More people could be cared for. And so there was advantages to becoming more institutionalized. There were good things that came out of this. It's not all bad. But then there were some losses. When you take hospitality out of the home and you more and more institutionalize it, uh, you lose the relational aspect. And so what happened is that over time, hospitality, care for the poor, became more and more anonymous. So to our day, you can care for the poor and never meet a poor person. You could live in rich Southboro and just type a few things on your computer and you've given a big donation to the poor, but you've never met somebody who's poor. You've never ha- you don't have a relationship with anybody who's poor. You don't know what it's really like. Because you've never met them. Um, that's a big shift. And what that also means, related to tonight, is hospitality became more and more detached, separated from friendship. When hospitality becomes more and more anonymous, friendship is just not possible. Friendship requires shared time together, getting to know each other, reciprocal hospitality but if yeah the way you do hospitality negates that then um, friendship goes as well so I don't think it's um, surprising to see that with the decline the fading of hospitality what we also see is the fading of friendship as a practice not just in the broader culture but amongst Christians And that's, yeah, because, yeah, when hospitality happens in a smaller setting, friendship becomes natural. It's a natural outworking. That's when strangers become guests and guests become friends. So that's what I see happen at Labrie a lot. That's one of the most beautiful things about Labrie. People come to Labrie as strangers with questions. They enter as welcomed guests. And many times they leave as a friend of somebody, with somebody. And sometimes that happens with people who come and with us who live and work here. Sometimes it's amongst yourselves. But that is one of the most beautiful, rewarding things to see or experience. Um, yeah, I just I was calling somebody the other day, and they were like, Dave, who'd been here, and uh, Dave, I consider you a friend. <laughs> And I was like, oh, those are sweet, sweet words to hear from somebody who's been through here. Um, that doesn't always happen. And it, of course, it can happen with everybody. You can't be a long-term friend with everybody who comes through here. But sometimes it happens. It's one of the most beautiful things. But again, when, when hospitality is taken out of a home setting, it becomes more institutionalized, more anonymous. Friendship starts to disappear. And so, yes, that takes us to uh, the eclipse of hospitality and friendship. And, well, we've been talking about the eclipse of hospitality, but now we're going to just look at friendship. And this is something that Wesley Hill has mentioned, uh, has written about his book, Spiritual Friendship. If you were to read one book on Christian friendship, this is the book by Wesley Hill. 
This is excellent. He writes this as a gay celibate Christian, and, and he talks about how Christian friendship has been both a struggle and a beautiful thing in his life. And he has so many good things to say on, on this topic in this book. But he has found, again, just like hospitality, Christian friendship has, has this deep, rich history behind us to look to. And, and not just Christians, I mean, friendship in general played a bigger part in society than it does today. But Jesus and his followers just took friendship even more seriously than the people of their day, even though it was a bigger deal back then. And they redefined it uh, based on the way Jesus did it, really. So in ancient times, again, friendship was typically with your own kin, those who were pretty much in your, your social circles, those who were like you. And, and this was kind of just an assumption. And a lot of this was part of the teaching even of the day. So here's a, a quote. This is from the Roman philosopher, politician Cicero. This is from his book, Treaties on Friendship and Old Age. This is a classic on classic book on friendship and Christians took a hold of this book too and it's part of their their discourse but then they also change things along the way with what Cicero says and I'll, I'll mention one of those in a minute but look at this beautiful quote I love this he talks about friendship with the exception of wisdom and he later mentions virtue I am inclined to think that nothing better than friendship has been given to man by the immortal gods. How can life be worth living, which lacks that repose, which is to be found in the mutual goodwill of a friend? That's so true. I mean, if we just changed God (laughs) instead of immortal gods, I would say amen to that. But now here's how he defines friendship. Friendship is a complete harmony in tastes, pursuits, and sentiments. A complete accord on all subjects, human and divine, joined with mutual goodwill and affection. But in the face of a friend, a true friend, a man sees, as it were, a second self. That's extreme. Uh, But that's not, that was not unusual for his time and his day. And it seems a bit strange to us, but I think there's this thing in Christianity where we're not supposed to just be friends with those who are just like us. Well, where did that come from? That that came from the way Jesus talked about it, pursued it. But yeah, this, yeah, this thinking has, you know, this is sometimes this is very true of our own selves. Um, But Jesus does give us a different way. And this is what Wesley Hill says with the coming of Jesus. He says, By the advent of Jesus and the descent of God's spirit, friendship was now shaped by the cross. We can think of how Paul saw the cross. It's reaching across those divides. Shaped by the cross and the empty tomb. No longer would believers gravitate only towards their social equals. Now they would form committed, permanent relationships that cry across lines of enslaved versus free, wealthy versus poor, high-born versus peasant, 
what we saw there, yeah, with Perpetua and Felicitas. So yeah, our unity in Christ is so deep and profound that it allows us to have very different people as friends. And I have found through my Christian life, some of my closest friends are, have been quite different from me. Before I was a Christian, I would never have chosen them as a friend. And I remember my one of my first friends as a Christian, a couple of years into being a Christian, I came friends with this guy named Miles Valley. And he's very different than me. Very different temperament. Very different way of evangelism. It's very, he's definitely not a second self as I looked at him. But we shared this faith in Jesus. And he took me under his wing. He mentored me in the faith in so many deep and profound ways. We became deep friends. And uh, so much so that Adam's middle name is named after him. Adam Miles Friedrich. But that's, yeah, what Jesus does. He, he broadens our friendships uh, to those who are different than us. With him we can do that. And he also deepens them. So, so much so that Christians in the past, some of them at least, used to make lifelong covenants with each other. <coughs> and the church even at times had liturgies for these covenants that they would bless. And some, some of these friends became so close they would, have, they would be buried in the same cemetery side by side. And this has some precedent, of course, in the scriptures. You go back to Naomi and Ruth, and there's this covenant that they make with each other. Uh, where you go, I will go. Your God will be my God. We quote that at weddings. That was actually in our wedding vows, but that wasn't a wedding. <laughs> that was a covenant between two women. That was a covenant of friendship, really. And then Ruth's great-grandson, is that David? Your great-grandson? He makes a covenant, this profound covenant with Jonathan in the Old Testament, mm. a covenant of friendship. And so much so, he took, David took this covenant so seriously, even after Jonathan died, he stuck with the covenant. Mm-hmm. So marriage, you know, till death do his part. But that covenant went beyond death. It's powerful. And I think because our friendships are typically pretty shallow and not very long-term, we find this strange, I think, for most of us when we first encounter this kind of thing. We maybe even get suspicious and think, huh, maybe there is something sexual going on there. Um, People definitely think that. But maybe that's an indictment on us, right? We can't imagine an intimate relationship that isn't sexual. We're so obsessed with sex We have to read it into everything. We can't imagine an intimate friendship that doesn't have sex involved. And that's an indictment on us. That we don't have those kinds of friends. And yeah, Facebook might tell us we have 500 friends. (laughs) But our loneliness will tell us something else. George Herbert wrote this in the 1600s. But love is lost, the way of friendship gone. David had his Jonathan. Christ is John. That was in the 1600s. You could already see it coming then. That's even more true today, I think. 
So Christ is John. Uh, yeah, some people, they wonder, did Jesus have a best friend? <laughs> and was it John? If he was truly human, could he not have a best friend? But this takes us to, yeah, how Jesus practiced his friendships. Takes us to our final section. Just highlighting here again, Christians didn't by themselves (laughs) redefine hospitality or friendship by themselves. They took their cue from Jesus. It was his example, his teaching, his kingdom, his cross, his Holy Spirit his indwelling spirit that brought about this new way of seeing each other, relating to each other. So yeah, when they were doing these things, they weren't demonstrating their kingdom. It was his kingdom. Here's a, an icon. I'm going to, we're going to just see this for the rest of the time. And I'm going to just say a few things about uh, that illustrate this icon. This is Andre Rublev's icon, the Trinity. If you don't know already, this is also called the Hospitality of Abraham. It's probably the most famous Russian icon there is. It's considered one of the greatest pieces of Russian art that there is. But the original setting is Abraham in Genesis 18, when he offered hospitality to these three angelic beings. But Rublev used this story to illustrate both the Trinity and the the hospitality of God. So what you have here is the Father is on the left and the Father's house above him. Then you have the Son in the middle and his tree of life above him. And on the far right you have the Holy Spirit and the mountain above him. And so, yeah, typically you read a painting from left to right, but that's why it's a, it, it hits you a bit because actually the movement is from the right to the left. If you see the Holy Spirit and the mountain is bending towards, towards Jesus, and then Jesus and his tree is bending towards the Father and his house, the ultimate destination. It's packed with really good theology. Um, beautiful. And they're, what are they doing? They're sharing a meal together. And the meal, actually, this is the Eucharist. This is communion in the center of the table. That's a cup. And that's communion that's in it. Which shows you that tree of life is actually the cross as well. And that's the meal we eat, but it's actually also the meal, the means by which we enter this circle. And so if you notice, there's a spot open at the front. And that's for us. It's an invitation. Come to the table. Come to God's table, to his meal. So yeah, to share a meal with somebody, it's an intimate thing. Isn't it? It's, uh, it's usually something, again, you do with family, friends, or somebody you want to become friends with. And in the Christian tradition of hospitality, sharing a meal together is very prominent. It's at the very center of this Christian practice of hospitality. Which, of course, yeah, began with Jesus. You can think of the Gospels. 
when is Jesus not either at a meal or coming from a meal or going to a meal? <laughs> he, was, he was called someone who was a glutton and a drunk because he was, so, he was with people so many times at a meal, eating with them, drinking with them. He came eating and drinking. And what's the, the thing he asks us to do to remember him? He says, eat this meal together to remember me. The one liturgical act he really gave us, the only one. But yeah, this is at the center of, of Jesus' ministry was a table <coughs> that he invites us to. And he invite he asks us to invite others to. A table, yeah, where lots of things happen. You read the gospels, where divisions are healed, where people are physically healed. People get forgiven at the table of Jesus. They learn a new way of being, of relating to each other at this table. Where strangers become guests, and guests become friends, and friends with God, and with each other. So yeah, many times when I practice hospitality, uh, say through a shared meal, this is in my mind. <laughs> this is uh, what I want to express when I share a meal, when I host a meal, when I practice hospitality. I hear that phrase, that line from from Romans 15: "Welcome one another, as Christ has welcomed you." And then I imagine this, and. Uh, think of how Christ has welcomed me and how can I welcome others and demonstrate that at a meal for the glory of God. And just think of how many different ways God has welcomed us through the story. You could probably think of more ways than these, but these are just a few. Think of creation when God just welcomes us into existence. He calls us into existence through his word and his breath his son and his spirit, to sit with him at the table of existence. He's, he's just making room for us in existence. And in, in Genesis, you see, it starts out with this inhospitable, formless void. And then what does God do? He makes it into a hospitable, formed, filled world for us to live in, to flourish in. Think of Israel. And how they were these slaves in Egypt. And God called them strangers. You were strangers in Egypt. And I called you out of Egypt. And what did God do? He welcomed them into the promised land. And he himself was their shelter, their refuge. He says that over, you read that over and over in the Psalms. God is our shelter, our refuge. It's beautiful. And then, of course, think of Jesus in the Gospels. What's he doing? He's welcoming people into the kingdom. This kingdom where people are cared for, they're healed in this kingdom, they're forgiven, they're changed. And we're not only welcomed into the kingdom, we're welcomed into the Father's house, as is illustrated in the icon. Jesus said, My Father's house has many rooms. If that were not so, I would not have told you that I'm going there to prepare a place for you. That's what Jesus is doing right now. 
And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come back and take you to be with me so that you also may be with me where I am in the Father's house. See how we're welcomed to the kingdom. We're welcomed into the Father's house. We're welcomed right to the table of the Father, of the Son, of the Spirit. Not just to be with God even, but even to be in God. To dwell in Him and He in us. Doesn't get more hospitable than that. There's a hymn by Isaac Watts that we sing here a lot called My Shepherd Will Supply My Need. It's a paraphrase of Psalm 23. And the final verse just beautifully expresses, I think, this hospitality of God. And it goes like this. Your sure provisions, gracious God, attend me all my days. Oh, may your house be my abode and all my work be praised. Here would I find a settled rest while others go and come. No more a stranger nor a guest, but like a child at home. I love that last line. (laughs) I think of that a lot. Um, that's what the hospitality of God does. Turns us from strangers into guests, into children of God, at home with God. That's one way to describe God's hospitality, the goal of it. You could describe it in another way. So I'll switch it up. Sorry, Isaac Watts, but what if we did this? No more a stranger nor a guest, but like a friend of God. It's a different side to the same relationship. So family and friends, those are two different ways of describing the same relationship we have with God and with each other. But they describe maybe different aspects. They have different um, things they're really describing. So with the family, you're describing more of who you are in a relationship. But a friendship maybe describes more of what you do in a relationship. Especially what your commitments are, what your intentions are towards each other. So to be part of a family, you can be totally passive, right? I can have a mother and a father and brothers and sisters. I don't have to do anything to have a mother and a father and a brother and sisters. I just have them. I should be kind to them. I should respect them and love them. But I don't have to do anything like that to have them to be part of them, to be part of that family. But you can't be that passive and be a friend. A friend implies you have some kind of relationship, a particular kind of relationship, one that has intention, good intention. You share something with each other. You spend time with each other. You have some kind of commitment through time with each other. So back to hospitality and friendship. Hospitality turns strangers into guests. And mutual hospitality turns guests into friends. So when hospitality turns from a one-way street to a two-way street, when it's reciprocated, then friendship is possible and many times happens. And so that's, yeah, what God's hospitality is inviting us into. Yes, we're invited to be his children at rest. 
But we're also invited to be God's friend with certain commitments towards him, to have a certain kind of relationship with him. So we're to respond with our own hospitality towards God. So, of course, we welcome God into our own lives. We welcome God into our own hearts. Someone once asked, where does God live? And the answer was, he lives where he's let in. So we can welcome God by doing that. We can also welcome God by welcoming those who are on the margins. Those who are the least, the last, and the lost. So Jesus said, when we feed the hungry, we give a drink to the thirsty, or welcome the the stranger, clothe the naked, visit the imprisoned. He says, whatever you do for the for one of these least of the brothers and sisters of mine, you do for me. So if you notice in the Gospels, and also in our lives, Jesus is both host and guest. That complicates it a bit. (laughs) That's what we're invited into, though, when we're God's friends. So it's not just a one-way street. Of course, the way we offer hospitality is very different, has differences between how God offers us hospitality. Now, when it comes to friendship with God, that's not explicitly mentioned in the Bible as much as, say, our familial relationship with God. There's way more references to God being our father, us being his children, us being brothers and sisters. But just because friendship isn't mentioned, the word doesn't mean the idea is absent either. So you can think of that. But but the actual word is mentioned several times throughout the scriptures. And here's some examples. When in um, Exodus, this is not too long after Moses had just been on the mountain with some of the leaders and he had this meal with God. It was a very mysterious thing. They go up the mountain and they're in God's presence and they, they start to eat together and have, uh, have this meal in God's presence. And not too long after that, this is what um, it says. It says, the Lord would speak to Moses as one speaks to a friend. And you could read that, well, it's just talking about God was being intimate, not necessarily God was being like a friend. But you could have said, well, God spoke to Moses like a king to a messenger. You know, they got close And that's what Moses was doing. But no, the wording was, as a friend. I think that's on purpose. You can think of Abraham. And in James 2.23, it says, Abraham believed God, and it was credited to him as righteousness. And he was called God's friend. This this refers to probably Isaiah 41.9 where God is talking to Israel and he mentions Abraham and and the tagline to Abraham is, Abraham, my friend. (laughs) That's what God says about Abraham. And uh, if we share the faith of Abraham, why not share the friendship of God that he had? His friendship with God. Well, of course, the one who said the most significant things about friendship, our friendship, is Jesus. And this brings us to close to the end. We've got maybe another five minutes. But Jesus said this. This is in John 15. 
You're probably familiar with this. My command is this. Love each other as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this to lay one's life down for one's friends. You are my friends if you do what I command. I no longer call you servants because a servant doesn't know his master's business. Instead, I have called you friends. For everything that I have learned from my father, I have made known to you. So one striking thing here is that Jesus describes friendship as the greatest love. That's pretty powerful. That's noteworthy. There's a a philosopher, John McMurray. He based his whole philosophy off of this passage. And his, his philosophy was summed up in two sentences. All meaningful knowledge is for the sake of action. And all meaningful action is for the sake of friendship. And yeah, he's one of my favorite philosophers. Um, but yeah, he basically tried to base, he tried to make his philosophy based off of what Jesus said here. <clears throat> well, then Jesus goes on to say, yeah, there's no greater love than this. And then he says, well, guess what? I'm your friends. I'm going to call you my friends. And why? Because I've shared with you everything I know about my father, what he's told me. What's to share with you? That's what friends do. They share things with each other, intimate things. And what could be more precious than sharing his knowledge of the father with us? He said, that's eternal life, to know the father and to know the son. So he shares this precious knowledge with us. He lays down his life for us, of course. And it's this kind of friendship, he says, you're to imitate. So he says, hey, if you're my friends, um, you're my friends if you do what I tell you to do. So when your friend is the Lord, how you love him is you do what he says. (laughs) He's the Lord. And your friend. That is a strange dynamic. (laughs) A beautiful one. But when your friend is the Lord, you do what he says. And the main thing he says is, love each other like I have loved you. So have this kind of, the friendship that I've been modeling with you, now you guys have that with each other. And that's not to be, again, just someone just like yourself, someone who's easy to like. um, (coughs) Jesus didn't like, he didn't become friends with people who were just like himself. How many in in the company of Jesus were single males in their 30s with a background in carpentry? I didn't see anybody like that. How many of those that he ate with were divine? How many of his friends were sinless? How many were going to die for the sin of the world? You know, he welcomed, made room for, cared for people who were very different from him. Um... He especially, yeah, went across the divides. Think of his first encounter with somebody where he offered the living water of the Holy Spirit. It wasn't to a Jew. It was to a, a Samaritan woman of questionable character. I mean, boom, boom, boom. He just crossed three divides in one person. 
and offered them the living water of the Holy Spirit. I mean, a rabbi didn't teach women. Jews did not talk to Samaritans. They hated them. They called them half-breeds. And you weren't supposed to associate with sinners. That's, that's what the Pharisees got mad about with Jesus. <laughs> Jesus went, boom, crossed them all in this beautiful, powerful encounter with this woman. So someone who uh, I think understood this well, closer to our day, was William Booth. He's the man who started the Salvation Army in 1865 in the east end of London. He was an evangelist who had a heart for the poor, for those who fell on hard times. And his influence is is very far-reaching, of course. Today, there are over 1.6 million members in 109 countries. And members are known for, yeah, you probably know, for, for helping those who are in hard times, helping the elderly, the young, offenders, drug addicts, the blind and disabled, providing food and shelter for the homeless. William Booth, though commenting on his movement, wrote this. One of the secrets of the success of the Salvation Army is that the friendless of the world finds friends in it. So he knew about the hospitality and friendship of God. He knew this table that crosses divides, that goes out to the margins. And he made it known in his day. So may we know it too and make it known in our day. Well, that's all I have prepared. And now is the time to interact. And if you have questions, things to add, places you want to take this, now's the time. Ben. I was just thinking about the... um what you were saying about friendship with God and how it's it's not even close to being a symmetrical friendship. You know, uh, mm-hmm. but lots of language in the Bible that says no, it is really friendship, like when God calling Abraham his friend. Um, and yet, when it comes to human relationships between between two people, symmetry of it seems to matter. It's like if it's all one person doing all the friending, <laughs> or whatever, um, or, uh, well, it seems to be not considered really a friendship, you know what I mean? Yeah. Um, whereas friendship with God, you're, you're, you're um, both asymmetrical, as in you're, you're very being, you're not, you're not divine, you're not different, but we're also... <coughs> Uh, friends with the ones who's giving us breath in each moment. And what is that like a give and take relationship? Yeah. It's a take and take relationship. Yeah. Um, and so I'm just wondering is, is there, I'm just wondering whether that, is that call into question or assumption that human friendships need to be symmetrical? Need to be hmm. somehow balanced? Or what? I don't know. I'm just. Yeah, that's a good question, Ben. Yeah, I don't. Yeah, I haven't thought about that. I guess my 
initial response is, yeah, probably in a lot of our relationships, it's rare that people are at equal places in their lives and equal abilities and what they can give and take. So I, my assumption is, yeah, a lot of times, maybe every time, it's never, it's, it's unequal. But there are certainly times when it seems somebody's capable of more in a relationship and they're just not offering that and that's hurtful. Um, yeah, because, yeah, for a true friendship, there's got to be reciprocity, something going both ways. But, yeah, that's a, that's a good point. Yeah, with God, it's, yeah, like, it's, there's no match. Like, <laughs> of course. I mean, the one who gives us life and justifies us and rises us from the dead. I mean, what, what can we offer in response to that? Thank you. <laughs> and, yeah, I'm going to trust you. I'm going to do what you say. But that's no match, of course. Um, but I think what I find beautiful about God, even though it's not a match, he still receives that from us. Like, even though it's incomplete, it's imperfect, God welcomes that in. And that's beautiful. Um, I mean, I think of that, yeah, like a, a parent with a child, that's a very small example, but, yeah, what can a child offer at times? Well, not very much, but the parent is just, just loves every little bit that can come their way. Um, even though it doesn't match what parents have done for kids. Um, but yeah, certainly with God, it's infinitely more. Um, but I love that God still receives it and, uh, makes room for our response. Nate. I sure can. Fourteen? Yeah. Uh, it says, uh, it says not to invite your friends, your brothers, sisters, and relatives. So I assume that's like maybe a little bit of hyperbole. I don't know, um, but yeah, like a, a percentage. I don't know how we could do that. I do. I do assume there's some hyperbole in this, because eventually the people you have that you give lunch or you have a dinner with, if you keep doing that for them, they become your friends. So eventually, <laughs> you have to break this somehow, because uh, if you vent, yeah, you're you're to become friends with people eventually with strangers. Um, strangers need friends. They don't just need one meal and then on to the next stranger. Uh, 
They need lasting relationships. And so I think it's good to also, yeah, keep in mind, he's saying this to a prominent Pharisee whose probably main thing going on was just self-promotion and comfort. Um, so I think Jesus is jabbing at him and the culture. But I think it's, yeah, I don't want to like blunt this too much either. And I think, um, I think it should challenge us to think, yeah, who do we invite to our tables? Do we just invite the ones who are easy, who make us feel better about ourselves? Or are we thinking more about, hey, who's left out? Who's not being invited to a meal? Why don't we invite them? Why do we invite the people who are always getting all the love? <laughs> you know, um, and I don't think that in the bigger teaching of the New Testament is you don't neglect your family either. Like you're to love your family. And that's Jesus speaks against that, too, in different ways. Um, so, I, yeah, I, I have a variety of maybe responses to that. But Marty, you got. Um, well, I was just going to say, I think the, the phrase, um, if you do, they may invite you back. And so you will be repaid. That was so much the mindset of in the Greco-Roman world. You didn't. You 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 always thought in terms of what you could get out of it, and and repayment and reciprocity. And so I think there is hyperbole there, but I also think that that phrase would have just so hit against against particularly the Greco-Roman idea. I don't know so yeah. much about the Jewish idea, although the. The, although the Jews were very, they didn't want to associate with Gentiles. They, you know, so they they kept to them to themselves. So, but the idea of reciprocity, repayment, never. I mean, that just goes totally against the Greco-Roman view of of um, the idea of inviting people in who couldn't repay you. Yeah. It's just it would have just been like a bombshell. Yep. Exactly. Yeah, that's what the passage makes me ask. It's like. It seems like Jesus is saying, "What when you have a meal and you invite people to it, what is it for? Mm-hmm. You know, are, are you doing it to just like advance yourself and gain something back and be impressive and be, um, you know, climb the ladder a little more or something? That's what he's." Imagine being that host. It would be, yeah, mighty. It just struck me, especially the last line: "You will be repaid to the resurrection of the righteous." Just a, just something that happened very recently. An example from our lives when we were in London. I got an email two weeks ago from a woman who to tell me that her father had died. A guy who had lived with us in London at a critical time in his life when he'd asked if he could live with us and he was he was um, squatting in an abandoned house with junkies who were breaking into drugstores every night and he was but it was the first time in his life he really wanted to study 
and wanted to go to university. And he lived with us another time, which had not gone well. But he came to us with a very different attitude and said, and asked if he could live with us and just explain the situation. And we said we would pray and think about it. And we did. And the reason why his daughter contacted, she 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 found a letter after he she called she contacted me to say that he had died and um and said that she'd contacted me because she'd written down something he had said to her at one point Marty and Dick saved my lives <laughs> saved my life and he didn't she didn't really know who we were but she tracked us down through Labrie and then just wrote to say <laughs> he had died and the, the crazy thing is he I mean it, it just it was that just hit me so hard that you will be repaid. We're not always repaid. We don't always know when we let someone, when we exercise hospitality. In this case, we we didn't know, you know, we, we wrestled with whether to tell him that he could live with us. Hmm. Then we finally decided it was the right thing with with um, conditions. Yeah. A curfew, you'll have to have so many meals with us, you'll have to go to, ch- there's a church in our house, you need to go to the come to the church services and so on. But by God's grace, it was the turning point in his life. And he ended up, 25 years later, he called us when he lived here to thank us for saving his life. Wow. And it's crazy. He went He went on and got O-levels, A-levels, got a university degree, a master's degree, and started a work um, whole institutions in Canada and the United States helping really needy people. And then his, so his daughter... <laughs> wrote and just wanted to know stories but it was so moving just thinking it was just so much of God's grace but that just that line really hit me tonight for the first time in the context of our having said yes to Cully hmm. at what we didn't know was going to be a critical time in his life and we had been repaid even before the yeah. <laughs> spilled over a little yeah <laughs> just, just beautiful um, with Great blessing, and actually, one his son has been to to either Vancouver or Rochester. Libre. His son has had lots of problems as well. Mm. Um, but again, we don't we don't always get to see in this life some of the ways in which in the kingdom there is a kind or is a repayment. Yeah, you know, this is sort of a foretaste, and one day we'll see him in the new heavens and new earth and really get to rejoice, <laughs> you know, when we know more of his story after those months that he lived with us. And, uh, but it was, it was just so mind-blowing to get this email. She, she went to a lot of trouble to track mm-hmm. us down because she, she didn't know our last names or whatever, but it was really, mm, that's but you don't know, but just, you know, all of you working, working with Brie, with Brie is a hospitality ministry and, we do often get stories and get hear from people maybe years later. Yeah. We don't always. But one day we will We'll get them all. Have a lot of, <laughs> a, lot of a lot of wonderful stories. Yeah. yeah. Dick. Yeah, I'm I'm wondering what we know and I can't remember I've read Christine Paul's book, but I can't remember. She says how practice of hospitality broke down, in fact. How? Was it the church that was changed, became big and more institutional? Was it 
the Roman Empire that was, you know, this more the church fitting into the Roman Empire? Was it people's homes? Um, in, the, in the New Testament, in the Book of Acts and the letters, a lot seems to be the church sharing everything yeah. uh, and, and ra- radical sacrifice. Um, you see people in small groups trying to regain that, don't you, in terms of a new monastic group, or just people doing, people leave here and they try and set up a community. But it's it's against the force of modernity, which is splintering people and fracturing people and setting them apart, and and mobility. Yeah. Possibility. And so, do you see anything that gives you we work in the free. This is our job to provide, to, to be hospitable. Uh, you know, we find a big house, we get a group of people together, and we do it uh, because we're, we value it, we feel called to it. But a lot of people who leave here want to see something go on that they've seen here, um, or the other branches or whatever. But it's really hard going. Uh, so many things work against it. So many things pull you. I get a few people together, then two of them left. And uh, they want to, where did they get their money out of it or whatever? And, and um, do you see anything that gives you encouragement for the, 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 the growth of hospitality today in, with this in the church or in families or in, in the Christian community? I asked Christine that very question. <laughs> and uh, she didn't have a ton to say that, oh, there's a new huge wave going on. I mean, I think she's seen pockets of it here and there, but um, but the age of mobility mm-hmm. is killing it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, mm-hmm. that's what, yeah, when people are moving around all the time, then, yeah, that kills the community, kills, uh, and uh, I mean, there's all kinds of factors at work, not just mobility, but that's a huge one. But then there's, yeah, there's some people who are trying to make more commitments. Be like, well, let's, instead of choosing our job, you know, choose uh, friendships over that. Or, um, or a church, yeah, there's a church that you're part of. Your relationships there are significant. Well, you're, a new job may come up. It's got better benefits, but maybe you should rethink what's, what's more important. Um, and I think people realize, yeah, your job is not as important as the relationships mm-hmm. you have. Um, so I think people are starting to think that way and maybe make movement there. But nothing big. Um, still need to... Yeah. I, yeah, mobility is it's a huge factor. I don't know, maybe have other people outside of Libri <laughs> seen that played out? in ways that are good and encouraging. Yeah. <laughs> I to see church, I'm encouraged if I see churches trying to do something. Yeah. Uh, I decided going through seminary to not work filibree, but to be a pastor of a church because I thought what goes on at Labrie needs to be able to happen in the church, because Labrie may fold tomorrow. Mm-hmm. The church is going to be here when Jesus comes back. <laughs> uh, uh, 
and and uh, what can be done in a church. And, and there, uh, it was a church in, the, in our own house, but I, it, we saw substantial things going on, but with a hugely changing population, so it was very hard to... Um, people most committed to community were less, the least capable of making it happen. The people yeah. more capable of making it happen were less committed to it. Uh, but, but nonetheless, something really good happened. Um, but but uh, I, I was thinking that the bigger the church, the harder it would be. Yeah. So again, this, this thing's working against it. But uh, I once lamented about it in some letter going out from Labrie and got a quick letter back from a friend of mine who I'd known from Swiss Labrie who was saying, oh, I, I was saying that how little of it is, there really is. And he said, no, no, I see a lot of it around. Hmm. And his kids have all been Christians and part of the community building things themselves just among, just as their family, but, but consciously framing their family and their house they buy and so on in, in that way. <coughs> So I was encouraged by that. Yeah. Uh, but uh, it's uphill. Yeah. I mean, I've heard, yeah, I guess I have heard of, of a lot of stories of people trying to live intentionally in community with each other, living closer together at least. Um, but I think a lot of times people have a romantic idea of what living together means. They don't, they don't always understand the cost. <laughs> and they need to hear more of, well, what's required to live with people who are different than you over a long period of time. That is hard. It's not romantic. That's, um, I mean, it's the hardest thing and it's the most rewarding thing when it goes well, but it's, uh, yeah. And it's harder when everybody has to earn their living outside of the house. Yeah. Yep. So that's where we have a bit easier. Yeah. <laughs> it's true. There's a question online. Yes. the relationship between love and hospitality. You mentioned John 13, hospitality is all-inclusive with loving others, and by that we are known as his disciples. He said he went to include Galatians 6 in his conversation, carrying each other's burdens. And his question is, love is hospitality, isn't it? Yes. I would say, hopefully. <laughs> I think you could try to practice hospitality with the wrong motive. Yeah, to, again, I mean, the way Jesus was critiquing uh, this host. Hey, you're making this look like a big, generous meal, but in fact, let's, let's name what's going on here. Uh, so, hospitality should be done with love. That's the, that's the magic ingredient. <laughs> but... Uh, and actually, the word hospitality, the Greek word is phylogenia. Philo... Philozenia, thank you, which means loving the stranger. Mm-hmm. So the actual definition of the word has love in it, love, loving the stranger. Huh. The not like there you it. go. Thank you for pronouncing it. <laughs> yeah, and that was God reminded the Israelites over and over, hey, just remember, you were strangers, so don't you dare oppress a stranger, but care for them um, as they come into your midst. So the, the practice of that was already there in a preliminary way with Israel. But 
but those practices can be lost. Sarah, Ben? Yeah. I don't have this fully sort of formulated yet, but I was just thinking of, um, yeah, in terms of thinking of like, what are signs that friendship is alive, that hospitality is alive. And, uh, I do think there's truth to what you say of like, the ideals that we attach to friendship and hospitality can blind us to seeing it in its very simple daily forms. And so I think it would be pretty despairing to say that, oh, it's, it's, it's hopeless right now. You know, I think that, um, yeah, I think there are, surely there are, <laughs> there, there are friendships, there are, you know, acts of, small acts of generosity or kindness that, you know, is an extension of hospitality, even in the midst of social distancing. And, you know, like, those are the things I'm like, gosh, I want to have my antenna up for mm. that, you know, big, yeah. Yeah, big <coughs> deal out of small things, yeah. you know, especially. Um, but where the question I have, I think, is, like, have you come across much or thought much about um, you know, Jesus having 12 disciples, three who get named, you know, in these more intimate moments, the transfiguration, um, and, yeah, and I guess that's something I feel like I've heard referenced at different times when it's like, you can't be the best friends to everybody. He was not best friends with the whole crowd that followed him. He treated each person with, you know, dignity and friendliness, I guess you could say. But then, like, there is, <laughs> there, there are 12, and then there are three. Yeah. And mm-hmm. maybe there was one, John. Maybe John was his best friend, or at least John certainly knew what it meant to think of himself as beloved, you know, by Jesus. So, yeah, do you have thoughts on yeah. that? Because I think that that's... I think that's a especially hard thing in a mobile age where we feel like we have to keep maintaining at the same depth friendships from different seasons of life. And we just we can't. Like, we are limited. So. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I agree. I mean, I think, yeah, you can't have the same. If you want to have a deep, Christian friendship or just a friendship you can't have that with a hundred people <laughs> you are limited but um, yeah and I think there's something too like even what you said with Jesus his example and so maybe to think of yeah th- who is this person what what kind of friendship is this there's different kinds of friendship I think that's good to have like graded friendships and these are my closest friends who I'm going to try and keep in touch with throughout my life um, but there's other, I can't do that with everybody. Um, and to not feel, not beat yourself up because you can't do that. Um, but yeah, I just read something recently on friendship by this lady. I can't remember her name, but she was mentioning Jesus and John and how there's this beautiful interlude of Jesus when he's on the cross and he's like telling, he's telling John and his mother, like, all right, I'm going, and so here's your son, and here's your mother. Like, mm-hmm. he takes time to say that in this ex- 
excruciating moment. I mean, I can't imagine. Yeah. Yeah, like he does that. And it's like, how, he, that just, like, it sure seems like they were best friends or closer than Mm -hmm. others, but. And he's redefining family in that moment as well. Yes. So there's a way in which, like I was thinking, you know, uh, no, no more stranger nor a guest, but like a child at home. And then, like, I also want to learn how to befriend my family. Yeah. Because I'm not very good at that. Probably. Yeah. Um, or, you know, when we talk about the way that friends are like family to us. Um, and so, yeah. I don't know. Yeah. There's, like, there's a friend that sticks closer than a brother. Yeah. I can't remember what proverb that is. Mm-hmm. But but then sometimes, yeah, you, yeah, what does it mean to be friends with your family, yeah, in a, in a deep way. I probably need more of that. I need more of that. But yeah, it's, you, it, you gotta think of, there's only so much of you. <laughs> um, uh, and that's hard. Hard to know when, yeah, to say, hey, this is enough of a friendship. I've made enough. I don't know the full answers to that, but. I don't know if there's have comments on that or Ben, you got I I had different comments if it deals with it Yeah. Jesus give us wisdom to know when <laughs> when we're neglecting or when we're giving too much yeah, I don't I don't know. But that's a good I want to know the answer to that. Ben? Yeah, I I just um this um Passage from Luke is uh, Peter Lighthart wrote this book. Uh, I think it's just called Gratitude, and it's it has a um, he makes a lot out of this passage and others because he's talking about in the ancient world um, there are always circles of reciprocity. You're, you're you know you, you you never and, and this is this was the ancient concept of gratitude. It's not just receiving something from somebody and saying thank you. That was nonsense. <laughs> yeah. In, in the ancient world, it was you get something from somebody and there's strings attached and you're expected to return in kind. Yeah. So you're expected to, whatever, invite the other person over for dinner and do a better job or something. And how that is foreign to our notion of gratitude today, which is no strings attached. You receive a gift, you say thank you, but that's good enough. That's gratitude. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, he, he, so he was talking about these sort of tight circles of, of reciprocity and then how Jesus and Paul's teaching really disrupt that. <clears throat> and uh, this passage in particular, he talks about it disrupts it not by doing away with reciprocity, yeah. but by opening up the circle of reciprocity to, to God himself. And so the whole, the whole idea is he just sort of blows the roof off of it you will be repaid, but by the Lord. Yeah. <laughs> um, and so it's not as if there's... I mean, a, sh- a shallow reading of that text, I think, well, is that really loving to people if you're just doing it because you think you're going to get rewarded by God for it someday? You know, like, what's that about? <laughs> uh, but no, it's, it's actually Jesus sort of shamelessly says, no, it's still, there's still a reciprocal thing going on here, but you're rewarded by God. First of all, the things you're giving to people aren't even yours, they're God's. Yeah. 
Second of all, that the fact that God is rewarding you frees up these poor people to just receive a gift from you and not have to pay you back. You know, mm-hmm. not not have this burden over them. God's the one that's paying the yeah. You know, paying you back. And it's just it actually is quite a um, yeah, just 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 quite a a more surprising thing than I had realized having read this text many times mm-hmm. before and not yeah. really not really noticing. Yeah. Yeah. Yes. Yeah, it can be really freeing to be, to, for both your sake, like, all right, I know I'm not, I'm not trying to get anything out of this person. I know if there's something to get back, God's going to take care of it. And, uh, and for them to know, oh, I know these Christians, they're not, you know, they're not offering this because they're looking for something. They're, they're trusting God to give them something in return, maybe, but that, that can free, I, I could see that being really freeing in, a, in receiving and giving. people talk about the, that very point that in a culture influenced by the Christian faith you don't have the tight uh, gift giving being a, a kind of a, a curse mm-hmm. in the sense that you've got to give that I get a gift oh I've got to get something what can I do mm-hmm. this kind of thing to, because when your basic gratitude is to God giving anything back to him is so out of sight that it just blows completely to pieces <laughs> any idea of repayment. Right. And, and uh, that in, in cultures influenced by the Christian faith, you have a different notion of gratitude and gift-giving, mm-hmm. which is kind of amazing, really. Yeah. Yeah, because it could be, yeah, like you're saying, in, the, in, the, in those cultures, it, you know, if you had a really rich person show hospitality to someone who was quite poor... It'd be devastating because yeah. they were supposed to match that, yeah. and it yeah. it could ruin them. Yeah. And yeah, there was power plays like that going on, Marty. And also, just carrying on the same sort of idea, the idea of kind of the idea of reward is so different. I think C.S. Lewis talks about it that the the repayment or the reward from having done something good, <laughs> follow Jesus in in this way is it's not going to be um, some crass reward. It's the, it's the, it's, it's the, the reward that fits. It's like Lewis talks about, what's the reward of a good marriage? It's the good marriage. <laughs> it's, it's the love. It's the friendship. And so, the, in a sense, the, the joy of yeah. a lot of the reward is the joy at, at seeing the fruit of in people's lives of what hospitality has, has meant for them. You know, it's not like, you know, like you're going to, like it's going to be somebody, you know, a vintage bottle of, of single malt scotch whiskey or something. <laughs> it's the reward is, is the joy. Yeah. Which is... Yeah, like, I, yeah, I wonder, because sometimes I feel like I'm getting the reward already yeah, in yeah. offering to people I don't think can pay back but it's like there's some there's a joy I remember um, I was part of an international student ministry when I was in doing my masters and we would have these Christmases where we would just host all these international students for Christmas and yeah. give them meals and and spend time with them and it was it wasn't really a sacrifice like <laughs> it wasn't like oh man I'm just like slaving away here and this is terrible it was like 
this is one of the most beautiful, oh, meaningful yeah. Yeah. Christmases I've had in my life. <laughs> and, uh, I felt like I got a reward already. I was like, mm-hmm. does that mean I don't get one at the resurrection? <laughs> Did I use it up? Or no? I'm sure there's, there's more coming. Or I'm not doing, you're not doing it for that reason. But, um, yeah. Well, any this is a totally different topic, so totally different angle, but just um, very interesting, sort of a classic book written by a social historian called The Female World of Love and Ritual Relations Between Women in 19th Century America. It's more worthy than my title, yeah. <laughs> but what it is, it's about, there's just, there's just rich evidence in, in letters and diaries and so on of extremely close, intimate, friendships between women in the 18th and 19th century. And a, a lot of, the, often the women were, sometimes they were single, often maybe one of them was married hmm. to a man, but had her closest friendship with a woman. Yeah. And um, and some of these women lived together, some of them didn't. Obviously, looking back now, some scholars want to make something lesbian out of it, and yeah. maybe there was in some cases, but but it was very accepted. This is extremely close relationships, and it, it seems that part of it had to do with the fact that there was such gender differentiation. The, the, the separate spheres was so rigid of, mm. that, in, in fact, it was a real problem in marriages. Men and women just were thought to have nothing in common with each other. Their worlds were totally different, and a lot of women were terrified to get married because of that, but often kept much closer friendships, more, more intimacy with other women than they did even with their husbands. It, there's, a, there's a lot of evidence for that. It's, it's really an interesting social, social historical <laughs> phenomenon. Just with such rigid gender definitions, what masculinity, what the true woman versus the true man, and they were so different and lived in completely different realms that yeah. it's not surprising that women made these intimate, close friendships um, that often they didn't even have with their husbands. Yeah. Yeah, I'm not surprised. Well, I think we'll leave it there. Thank you, Dave. Thank